All right, hello and welcome to the Madcast, the podcast hosted by the UC Berkeley Disability Lab and recorded at the Ethnic Studies Changemaker Studio, where we explore the intersection of disability, academia, and more. I'm your host, Nate Tilton, and my co-hosts, Elle and Trisha. And today we have a special guest with us, Maddie Taylor. They are a second-year PhD student in environmental science policy and management. For those of you Cal Bears, that is ESPM right here at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Maddie. Welcome, Maddie. Thanks. Nice to have you. Maddie, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and, uh, you know, about your background and your research? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, like Nate said, I'm a second year in ESPM, which I'll probably abbreviate throughout this convo because the full name of the department is so long. Um, but, yeah, so my second year, um, I'm studying with Sonora Taylor in ESPM, who is um, a painter and a writer and scholar in disability and critical animal studies. I'm interested in how disabled folks are affected by climate change, and that work can go in a lot of different directions. My program has a pretty chill policy about the first couple of years. It's kind of meant to be like a pretty exploratory first couple of years where you just kind of read a lot and find your way to your project. Um, one of the things I'm looking at now is kind of investigating the early coalitions between um, the disability rights movement and the environmental justice movement in the 80s to kind of articulate their connections to one another in order to build a more disability-aware climate justice movement in the mm. present. So, mm -hmm. yeah, nice. that's some of what I'm working on. That's wow, awesome. that's super cool. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate upon, like, why you chose to pursue this specific path in terms of research. Like, any personal experiences, any anything of that sort? Yeah, I mean... I'll shy away from telling my entire life story, which is kind of all the answer. But um, yeah, I grew up uh, on the coast of Maine. I have um, cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic lung disease. Uh, and so I grew up really close to the ocean. And there's sort of this like one of the most standard treatments for cystic fibrosis or CF, as I typically refer to it, mm. um, is nebulized salt water. So I sort of had this like kind of connection to the ocean my entire life. Mm that literally made me feel better kind of both physically and mentally and didn't really know why until I went on to undergrad and studied biology and learned about sort of what this treatment does genetically and like cellularly for people with CF. Um, so I basically went on to study marine ecology in undergrad. I went to Barnard. I uh, graduated in 2017. I did some work on sargassum, which is a type of pelagic algae in the Sargasso Sea. That's what I was studying in my undergrad. Um, and then I were also worked in environmental education for many years. Um, I stayed in New York City after undergrad, and I ran a nonprofit for many years called Sprout Up, um, which teaches first and second graders about environmental science. So that was sort of um, the first time I was really able to translate science for the general public and for young people in particular. And that was kind of a context in which it was like acceptable to be disabled and like sort of identities were a thing that could be drawn upon to inform one's work rather than a thing that you had to like leave at the door to be a you know, good scientist. Um, so I think that helped me to kind of become interested in what it would be like to have disability kind of inform my work rather than be a thing that I needed to like hide or, or like overcome. Um, so yeah, I sort of became interested in all of this environmental work that I was doing and, and also just kind of at the same time noticing this immense lack of disability presence in environmental spaces more generally and kind of trying to investigate why that might be. 
and I sort of knew my own personal experience with it, that it was just immensely difficult to be disabled and try to be a natural scientist. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are still just these very like Western colonial tropes about what it means to be a good scientist. Like you're an able-bodied, you know, white man, like traipsing through the jungle or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think it just was incredibly difficult to be somebody who's disabled or chronically ill and trying to be a quote unquote scientist. So yeah, all of these experiences kind of made me curious about what it might be like to bring disability and environmental stuff together. So I started looking at uh, applying to grad school. I found the work of Sonora Taylor, who's now my advisor. Um, I got into Berkeley and started last year. So that's sort of how I came to those two things. Awesome. And thank you for sharing us your meaningful experiences. Um, can you tell us more about your role as a diversity and community fellow and the initiatives you're working on. Yeah, totally. So yeah, the Diversity and Community Fellows is a a program through the Office of Grad Diversity. Um, I applied to that in order to address some of the inequities that disabled graduate students face at Berkeley. I think a lot of the services that the university provides for disabled students are very much like focused on undergrads. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that that we don't necessarily need to get into. But um, I also think like we have these services that we can get as disabled graduate students through DSP, the Disabled Students Program, when we're students, like when we're taking classes as students. But then graduate students also are workers and our accommodations as workers come through our union and our protections are really non-existent as workers through our union. Um, And so I think there are just all of these considerations about what it is to be a disabled graduate student in particular. Um, And just I think that there is an immense amount of precarity for us as disabled grad students who are workers. So, yeah, I became interested in applying to the Diversity and Community Fellows to try and see what I could do to maybe leverage some more support for disabled grad students. Nate and I are both working on this initiative. We're working on starting um, a peer support space for disabled grad students at Berkeley. Um, We're going to have our first meeting in December. And other than that, I think maybe having like some office hours to walk people through the accommodations process for for our contract as workers. Um, Maybe putting together a resource map for folks to sort of know where they can get resources from. And how, um, and yeah, we're also working with the diversity or the division of equity and inclusion to try to work on this diversity justice initiative that the university is going to launch soon. So, lots of different things going on that Nate and I are working on, but broadly just focused on trying to increase kind of the focus on disability support for grad students. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's you know to take my host hat off and put on my uh, diversity and community fellow hat on, you know, that's, you know, Maddie, I definitely feel like the project we're working on is, is very important because like you said, it's just, you know, disabled grad students just don't get that same, that, that same intention as disabled undergraduate students do. And I like, don't get me wrong. I definitely feel disabled undergrad students need their accommodations just like we do, but there's you know, still, I feel still needs to be an understanding that disabled grad students and disabled undergrads have different things going on in their lives and require different accommodations or at least understanding that their accommodations are not the same. And I think that's one of the biggest issues, I think, is the university, not specifically Cal, but it seems like academia as a whole, tries to approach it as, you know, like a cookie cutter mentality mm-hmm. and, and basically just like, you know, this one size fit all approach. And I think that's 
definitely a issue that's a legacy of not only capitalism, but, you know, just the, the deviation of universal design into this mode to save the university mm-hmm. or academia money in these spaces. And instead of letting disabled students figure out what works more for them, it's like, well, no, you're the problem because that accommodation doesn't work for you. Yeah. You know, I don't would, would you mind talking about that maybe like in your experiences that if you've had any, you know, in terms of your accommodations that, you know, if you don't mind sharing that, like for me, I know I've had some issues definitely with the university um, in terms of my accommodations as a graduate student. And I did my undergrad here and it should mm-hmm. have been just kind of the same thing of like, oh, okay, cool. I get, you know, same accommodations, but the university just wasn't able to accommodate and that became a whole big thing for at least the last couple of years. So I'm just mm-hmm. curious if you had any any instances like that. Mm-hmm. Or... Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think to be a graduate student, is there's also a lot of expectations to sort of just like to be a grad student is to sort of pay your dues or to like suffer in like some fundamental way. Yeah. Um, because you're like, oh, we're so lucky to be here. Right. And like yeah. we're so lucky to have our tuition covered and like be at this prestigious university and be working with all of these brilliant people. And it's like, because of those things, you're sort of just meant to like, not really care that you're exploited. Right. Like suffering Um, silence. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is just like such a pervasive idea across academia. And I think that Mm -hmm. when you're disabled, like those norms really don't hold up for us, but because we're held to those same academic standards, Mm -hmm. it just, yeah, it becomes very much like the fault is located in the disabled body as opposed to the fault is located in the the system, right? Um, but I think for accommodations in particular, I mean, I actually had a pretty easy time with my mm. DSP accommodations. Yeah. Like I sort of just came in August before I started and they were like, you know, what accommodations did you have in undergrad? And for me, that was really just like kind of unlimited extensions on things because I get sick a lot. Mm. Um, and when I get sick, it's like not just a couple of days, it's almost always a lung infection and antibiotics and lots of time off. So um, kind of just, yeah, extensions and absences and things like that. So I just sort of came in and we're like, that's sort of what I had in undergrad. And DSP was like, cool, we can give you those. And also, would you like these other like 11 accommodations? Mm -hmm. So they were actually great about that. And I think I also personally am just a lot healthier now than I was in undergrad. So I haven't Mm. had to use my academic accommodations as much, but it's a totally different story for working. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just the process through which our accommodations are like really non-existent, you know, and it's really up to the discretion of your PI to decide mm. whether or not you will receive your accommodations because the turnaround for our work is so short. Yeah. So if we start a contract in August, it ends in December mm-hmm. and the process of like grieving or going through the, um, like the grievance process or trying to have some accommodation met would take like weeks or months and then mm. like the semester's almost over, you know? Yeah. Um, so the process is, is just really bad. And I am a first time GSI this semester and I sort of knew that it would be bad. And so in the spring, I spent a lot of time sort of talking to people in my department and being like, all right, who are the faculty who are great about disability and who should I stay away from Yeah. on the basis of disability? Um, and got a lot of really good guidance from people in my department on that front and then kind of just hustled to try to find a way to work with a professor who I had heard good things about. And so I was really lucky to get the position that I got now. And I just know that this professor, like if I needed anything, I would just get it because this professor is just on the same page as me about disability. Yeah. And I think that that is so much not the case for like 99% of grad students, you know? And so it's just 
very much like it's not a great system that like this is the work that we have to do to sort of scramble to find a one in a million professor who's not super ableist who we can work with. No, it's definitely a gamble to even for undergrads uh, picking classes or working with professors or something. It's a gamble whether they're going to respect your accommodations or not or whether or not. You know, even if you do have DSP, I mean, I've had, you know, friends who have DSP accommodations where they're just flat out ignored and the university has to take action. But that being said, there is a lot of room that the university gives for these professors to have that ability to be ableist. And I think it's really, you know, it's obviously a very much systemic issue Mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be left up into the individual's moral their moral compass their moral compass yeah yeah. and i think trisha has a question go ahead trisha yeah i was about to ask are there times when you know uh, your professors are more accommodating than than dsp themselves Mm. definitely yeah yeah definitely um there have been times where i've had professors just be like I don't even need a letter from DSP, literally whatever you need, just tell me. Same here. And I still give them the letter, right? Because there's always the chance that they are lying, you know, Mm -hmm. they're just trying to be nice. So you always, you know, cover your back in that way by giving them the letter. But yeah, yeah, professors who I've worked with who are either themselves disabled or who study disability Mm. are always the ones who are like literally whatever you need. And even if it's not a disability issue, like I lost a family member in January and I told Mm -hmm. my professors that and they were like, take as much time as you need for anything, you know. So even when it wasn't like a legible disability issue, they were still like, I'm not interested in like earning you out. I'm not interested in overproduction. So, yeah, I appreciate those professors a lot. Well, you know, I'm curious about what may have been the impact of COVID on that as well, because I think in some ways, uh, you know, I've I was reading in some articles comparing COVID or the experiences to COVID uh, or the time of, you know, when we all had to be in our homes and away from the university or the school or or whatever it was. Um, Some people got a taste of what it's like to be like live in crypt time. Right uh, to be in a form of crypt time, and and for our listeners, uh, crypt time is a as a uh, concept by Allison Kafer. It's a wonderful concept. I like to use uh, a lot of times in my work, and it's essentially the time that you know disabled or chronically ill folks take out for themselves due to their disabilities, and it also takes them out of the temporal game of quote unquote moving forward because they have to. Well, they have to take care of whatever they take care of, whether it's offloading their power chair from their vehicle or going to the doctor to, you know, because they're having a flare up with their disabilities or because they have a migraine and they're in bed for the next three days or something along those lines. Um, so crypt time can be any one of those things. But yeah, uh, check out Alison Kafer's work. Uh, was it Feminist Queer Crypt, mm-hmm. I believe? Yeah. yeah. Awesome book. Uh, 2013, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just makes me, make me think, like, you know, maybe some of the professors, I don't want to say they got a taste of crypt time, but maybe it's like maybe they started to feel more empathetic because I think a lot of them may have experienced COVID or and then now experiencing long COVID, mm-hmm. which also I feel has introduced them more to the disability community in that sense as well. And I just y'all's thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, something I very much noticed is the greater accessibility of both in-person and Zoom mm. options, um, which is something that has been incredibly helpful, especially on days 
Like, for instance, when I am so fatigued, I can't think, I can't process. And so having that option is, you know, something that many disabled people very much could use. And so this kind of goes into, you know, having multiple paths of accessibility um, such that people can mold what they need to... um, what is available, if that makes any sense. I'm sorry. I'm having a bad brain fog day. <laughs> That's okay. Brain fog days are okay. I mean, mm-hmm. we all have them. Yeah, no no worries at all. Brain fog is always welcome. <laughs> um, Trisha, what are your, your thoughts on it? You know, because I, I know for myself, when I was it, I started back in school at a community college in like 2016, 2017, just, you know, seeing how things have changed through that time frame of, because uh, I graduated during COVID, like in the like in 2020, so that was like one of those things. I'm just curious of your your thoughts of maybe like what you've seen or experiences in terms with uh, professors and accommodations or not as accommodating. Because I know you're in psychology, right? Yeah, yeah. Just building off of what you mentioned about professors being more empathetic, my professor actually wasn't a fan of recording his lectures and it wasn't until he had COVID himself that he was like oh yeah it's it's time that I start recording so that in case anybody needs to take a day off it's available the material is available for everybody. Mm. That's a trip though because it it reminds me of one of those things where I know at least before X was when Twitter, it's no one calls in. it X. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't bring myself to call it that. I just I can't do it. Feels it's, wrong. It's just wrong. It is. It's just, I, like uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I could go off on a tangent on that, but you know, it just reminds me, like especially with like you know with the disability community groups that you know were on Twitter prior to whatever it is now, and it just reminds me because a lot of folks, you know, I and I understand the argument for it, right? Where it's like, oh, you know, for able-bodied folks or temporarily able-bodied folks because they may eventually join our ranks as disabled folks rather sooner rather than later or sooner or later, right? But then at the same time, I I don't like that argument, but at the same time, I understand it. And at the same time with the COVID stuff, I feel it like is a good example of that argument as well where people are experiencing that. And so they're kind of like, yeah, maybe I need to be more empathetic mm-hmm. or maybe I need to be more flexible in the way in which I'm doing things especially for my students, because it's like, oh, well, I experienced this and, you know, maybe they're experiencing still some some long COVID, some chronic fatigue or whatever they're experiencing. I'm just curious your thoughts on this, Maddie. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it sucks that somebody would need to experience disability themselves in order to have empathy for disabled people, even if like... The disability that you experience, almost particularly if the disability you experience is like temporary, yeah. because then you can be like, oh, I felt for the first time what it was like to be in a body that didn't do everything <laughs> I wanted to do. But yay, now that's over, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think it, it, it almost like gives people, I don't know, maybe some empathy for folks for whom it will not be going anywhere. But like yeah. that empathy should exist whether or not you experience like bodily variance in your lifetime, you know? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's one of the things uh, that I find interesting about long COVID and things of that nature is because it seems like 
like I feel like in some ways they still want like the folks who are experiencing long COVID. I'm not trying to make little of the things they're experiencing, but I feel like a lot of times like they're still trying to keep themselves separate from the disability community yeah. in a yeah. way where they're like, well, I have long COVID. I'm not disabled. Disabled. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's it's one of those things where it's like, no, dude, it's okay. You know, if you have chronic fatigue, no, dude, that's that's a disability, dude. It's, yeah. it's okay. And I even see that honestly with people who want to claim disability and feel like they cannot. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that within my own life. My mother is little d deaf. Um, so essentially for those listening, capital D deaf means you are culturally deaf. Little d deaf means you have the medical diagnosis of deafness and are hard of hearing. And I've seen the ways in which there is sometimes gatekeeping from disabled communities. And some people might want to claim disability for themselves, but either external forces like gatekeeping or internal forces like internalized Mm -hmm. ableism, because my mom was raised orally. So she was mainstreamed and she she was born hearing but became hard of hearing. Um, but she was like forced to, you know, speak, not sign. And so it's really, you know, interesting how both internal and external forces prevent people from claiming that as an mm-hmm. identity. But at the same time, we can't exactly reprimand people who want to separate themselves from their mm-hmm. disability. Because um, I know that um, person first language uh, very much uh, is something that, you know, a lot of disabled people like to use. But, you know, it's a, it's a tricky issue, you know, claiming identity while having a disability. Mm-hmm. And I think that this yeah. is also kind of one of the main critiques of like the social model of disability, right? Yeah. And for folks who don't know, kind of the medical model of disability is sort of how right, like the medical industry would think about disability, that Mm -hmm. disability is a condition that resides in the body and the way forward is like treatment and cure. Whereas the social model of disability kind of understands that it is not bodies inherently that disable, it is social structures that render people disabled. Mm -hmm. So kind of one of the main critiques of the social model of disability, also going back to Alison Kafer, um, is this idea that bodies matter too, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like you can still be a disabled person and also wish to feel better in your body. Like whether that's wishing to be in less pain, you know, for me, that would mean doing treatments that like make it easier for me to breathe, right? Like I can still claim disability and claim disability pride while also trying to feel better in my body. And I think that there's maybe this idea that non-disabled people have or that newly disabled people have that in order to claim disability, you need to sort of just accept however you feel. I mean, that's one of the things like I'm I'm kind of caught in between because I'm like writing a journal article currently and, you know, it, it's about masculinity, uh, liminality, you know, orientation, you know, especially for people with acquired disabilities. And I want to go off on a part and say like just because I'm like, you know, the article seems rah, 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 disability pride. The problem is I have a word count limit, so I can't really <laughs> go into more detail of what I want to go into, you know, and say, yeah, it's just because these people are experiencing disability just because they were able to reorientate themselves through their disabilities to become advocates or whatever they've become. Uh, doesn't mean that they're not still experiencing the disabilities. And I definitely agree. I think that's the shortcomings of the social model disability Mm -hmm. where it's like it just doesn't have a way to really interpret that. Right. And I think it also doesn't really necessarily have a way to parse through what it means when disability comes about as a result of violence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So there have also been people who are like, you know, again, Alison Kafer has this like political relational model of disability, which posits that like disability is always inherently political, especially if it comes about as a result of some sort of systemic violence. So I'm thinking yeah. particularly of like environmental disability, which is something that shows up a lot in my own work. So people who were disabled by like lead contamination in Flint or sort of like the earliest articulations of the environmental justice movement were about exposure to hazardous chemicals at a waste site. So when disability comes about as a result of this like state neglect or like violence targeted at particularly marginalized communities, like mm. the stance of disability pride does not hold up yeah. because how can you have pride for something that was violent? Yeah, it just yeah. it's just not something feasible. Um, Trisha, did you have, I know you're on the chat, so I'm just curious what you're thinking. Um, I actually have a question about the social model of disability. Um, can you actually el elaborate more? Yeah. Um, so the social model of disability essentially is to do like a, a quick breakdown of it. It's basically the way in which society disables you instead of your disability or impairments that disable you. So it's like, instead of, for instance, it's the stairs that were built instead of the ramp. So it's the stairs that are disabling you due to the fact that they're not accessible to you. Or that can also be an institutional policy structure, for instance, like if in school you have normative time, which I feel is, is highly ableist, but so let's say you didn't have a reduced course load accommodation and you can only have normative time. That would be essentially a disabling effect of policy where it's like you're basically being excluded from school because of the policy of normative time, which is still an issue because the university still has normative time. And I feel disabled students are still penalized for having a reduced course load accommodation. Not only that, but I've, I've also discovered, too, that the university is penalized, too, for having students with reduced course load accommodations. So that's a whole nother thing. Uh, essentially, they don't get full. Um, I don't know what they call it for like when they get money for students, but they don't get yeah. full money from uh, due to having disabled students or, or student parents or, or, mm -hmm. or caretakers that are on a reduced course load. And, you know, I, I think that's utter nonsense. I know someone here in the academic Senate proposed something to get rid of that due to the fact that it is very ableist and exclusionary and it's not only impacting the disabled students, impacting the university. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. But, you know, uh, that was back in the spring. I think I heard about that uh, spring 2023. So I don't know where it's at right now. I probably should follow up and, and find out. But yeah, no, thanks for that question, yeah. Trisha. Did that help explain it? Uh, Yes. Uh, yeah. Sorry for going off script, but um, no. to build off of that, yeah, I experienced something similar. Like I wouldn't be eligible for certain scholarships mm -hmm. because I'm not a full-time student, mm -hmm. and you know it limited the amount of aid I'm able to receive. Well, I think there's that's definitely an issue with scholarships. Like scholarships are a whole nother issue. Like you have some of them who are ageist or they, you know, they won't say they're ageist, but it's like when you exclude like a whole population of students just because of their age, that's essentially ageist, right? You know, of course, nobody's really addressed that because it's like, see, these are some like pretty heavy hitting like scholarships and fellowships. So it's like, oh, but you know, it's always oh, only for this age range. It's like, well, I'm a non-traditional student. You know, it's like, is that, what am I, a dirtbag? Because I, I, you know, I, I didn't go, I didn't, 
you know, I had to work or I didn't think school was the right place for me. All of a sudden now I can't get it because mm -hmm. of X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's definitely exclusionary in that way. Or you have disabled students who may be transfer students and they took their time to get here uh, for whatever reason. And now they're excluded from the scholarship because of it. So, and then, yeah, Trisha, like you said, like I, that's definitely been a question. The workaround, knock on wood, I'm not going to actually knock on the wood because it will reverberate through the studio, but, <laughs> and, and Angel, our, our engineer is going to give me a, a side-eyed look if I were to do that. But um, the, the workaround that I found is to, and it sucks that we have to do that, but it's one of those things where it's like, I feel we, we find ways to circumvent. And then we're not trying to play the game. We're just trying to figure out how to make the game work mm -hmm. with us and for us in a sense, like everybody else does. And I think it's like, and in that case, Trisha, the, what I've seen is you take an independent study with a professor who essentially is, I don't say cool, but is willing to be like, yeah, you have a reduced course load. Yeah. You can't get this fellowship because of X, Y, and Z. That's nonsense. Sure, you can take an independent study with me for X amount of units, which, you know, makes you quote unquote full time. Mm -hmm. And then that should be the workaround around that. And that's what grad students do. For yeah, sure. And that, that is, yeah. The, <laughs> Every semester, you know. <laughs> that is the secret. Yeah. So, you know, if you're a disabled grad student and you're listening and you're like struggling in classes and you have reduced course load accommodation, you should mm -hmm. definitely do that. I'm just mm -hmm. saying. Um, Professors expect you to, whether you're disabled or not. You yeah. Know, as you start to phase out of taking classes, you just take independent study units. The penalization of, you know, not having a full course load is something that would actually benefit both disabled and non-disabled students. I mean, it's under this notion that, like, you have to have a certain amount of output Yeah. Um, that kind of exists under this, like, capitalist framework. Yep. Um, and so if you aren't productive enough, even if you have this, like, love of learning and you want, you know, to invest more time, perhaps in, like, one or two classes or, or something like that, the university very much is, like, but you're not working your ass off. You're not <laughs> killing yourself over this. Yeah. Um, and I find that's something that's that's kind of a notion that, you know, is something that has affected an entire generation. I mean, there's a stereotype that like Gen Xers, for instance, um, like work themselves to death. And so it's really interesting, you know, trying to see, you know, conversations starting about like, okay, why do we have to work ourselves to death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's it's all like that's one of those things. And then they get mad when you push back mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And you're like, what do you mean you're not going to do that? Yeah, this is something I see actually almost more with like yeah. junior faculty. Yeah. Is there's um, because you're a junior faculty member, there's that you have to produce so much in yeah. order to, to sort of have the best possible file for tenure. Yep. And so then the expectations that they have for everybody else are like unreal totally yeah. unattainable because they themselves have to overproduce in this massive way and it, it's something that from junior faculty i feel like just keeps getting worse like with every sort of new generation of faculty well like, each, each university is completely different too like i think berkeley is like a book plus like a bunch of articles or something like that other places are like two books plus mm -hmm. articles or something it's like it's ridiculous i mean it also depends on the the university and the department and their requirements but yeah i think they just yeah. keep adding on more and more but then they wonder why we're having a huge exodus of academics yeah. right now. Like, like there's a lot of people leaving academia due to the the toxicity in it, mm -hmm. and it's just it's just ridiculous. Um, yeah, Trisha, I hope that answered your question with the social model because yeah, in terms of like you experiencing that with the fellowship or the scholarship and having like full units and whatnot. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent. I think one of the things that would exemplify a good example of the social model where essentially you're being excluded from that 
that uh, potential scholarship because you're not taking full units. Yeah, and sometimes I do internalize that like ableist perspective. I feel bad for being on a reduced course load. I'm like, oh, should I be doing more? Am I not doing enough? I always, my motto for disabled students is always ask not what you can do for the university. <laughs> ask what the university can do for you. For real though, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's essentially really the way we have to think about it because what do you owe the university? You pay them like X amount of thousands of dollars annually in, in tuition and fees. It's like, what? <laughs> and life yeah. for us is already hard enough. Yeah. You know, take yeah. what you can get. Yeah, exactly. And and unfortunately, it's like like you have to find those like embodied, I don't say loopholes. I don't, I don't like to use the word loopholes, but it's like you have to find those embodied ways of, you know, working, uh, yeah, working the system. Screw it. I guess someone else just mm -hmm. say, you know, yeah. working the system because essentially that's what you have to do that's because the system is going to work you. Yeah. So yeah. you have to work it right back. And, you know, and that's, so I mean, Trisha, that could be something, you know, if you ever think about that, um, especially as, as you, I know you want to go to grad school and that's one of the ways you could do it too is, you know, definitely having independent studies to fill, to round out your, uh, to round out your units. Cause like Maddie was saying, like, yeah, they, uh, the professors don't expect you to take a whole bunch of courses. I remember, uh, my advisor was like, you got to stop thinking like an undergrad. You got to yeah. think like a graduate student. Cause <laughs> exactly. you, you have all these other things you have to do, right? You're either, sometimes you're teaching, sometimes you're working on an article, you're working on your field statements, you're working mm -hmm. on all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. it, it's not feasible for you to take like three three or four classes, mm -hmm. you know, you just take what you need to take and, and move on because at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you just got to survive. But Trisha, did you have uh, any other questions? Yeah. Uh, shifting back to Maddie's work, um, how can we better incorporate disability studies into climate change discourse? Yeah, great question. I mean, that's kind of the the question of my PhD. So stay tuned for my forthcoming dissertation <laughs> four decades or however long this is going to take me to do. But yeah, I mean, I think disability has just very much not been sufficiently studied as a category of difference in mm -hmm. sort of climate change studies and environmental studies. I think environmental justice, both as an academic movement and as a sort of a scholarly field, have done a really good job of explaining how climate change and environmental inequality affects people differently, particularly along the categories of race, class, and like newly, maybe in the last five years, gender. Mm -hmm. And there's next to nothing about how disabled folks are affected. And I think that that really has to do with sort of the way that disability has not been sufficiently like disaggregated from health. Mm. Yeah. Because health is seen as this like, climate change impact mm -hmm. like climate change disables people and yeah. that is the relationship between climate change and disability and i think if you're able to disaggregate disability from health it becomes obvious that disability is this like really rich cultural identity it's a site of knowledge about adaptability and loss mm -hmm. it's a site yeah. of resistance and all of these like much more complex assemblages than just a signifier of health mm. so i think that kind of bringing critical disability studies to environmental justice or to climate change kind of opens up all of these possibilities for imagining what a future with climate change can look like in, in a really radical way. So yeah, I think that's that's what I'm hoping to do. And I think, you know, hopefully more disabled folks will arrive at this work. I think that 
one of the reasons we don't is because of sort of this whole conversation we've had about how hard it is to be disabled in mm. academia. Yeah. And I think that there's sort of this paradigm in which work about disabled folks is so rarely produced by disabled people. Yeah. Because to get to this place where you're a tenured faculty member is so unbelievably difficult for anybody, let alone somebody who's disabled and needs to go through all of these accommodation processes we've just talked about. So I think my hope is that as academia, be hopefully, maybe over time, becomes a little less ableist, more disabled folks will show up to do this kind of work. Yeah, definitely. That's very much the hope. Um, there's also, I, I love how you mentioned, you know, there's a greater need for, you know, crossover in in terms of social sciences, especially disability studies, something that's so under-researched and under-discussed. And intersecting that with, you know, something typically seen as harder sciences or politics or there's just a problem within academia about you know, not crossing disciplines. And I know it, there's a lot more breaking of the mold of that as of late, but it's very much a need, you know, to bridge those gaps to not only represent someone's whole experience or work for a multitude of different, you know, identities, but also to produce, you know, better knowledge. Well, I think that's, that's a part of the issue too, right, is you know, when a like a disability studies major gets set up, like a lot of times it gets incorporated with some sort of rehabilitation. Yep. And I think that's a large part of the problem. And I, like I understand, like the university is trying to sell something. And at the end of the yeah. day, that's what they're doing. They're selling a major. And it's like for non-critical disability studies folks, of course, the, you know, they're attracted to that in a sense where it's like, oh, I can become a rehab specialist yep. or occupational yep. therapist or whatever the case it is. And then, you know... I think it's it's one of those things where significantly different mm-hmm. of what at least in our approach of critical disability studies and disability justice versus just walking up and taking like a course on like some sort of rehab mm-hmm. or or something along those lines and and I'm like I'm not I don't want to discount those people as well because you know they they have their function they they do their thing but it's like it's also as a disabled person there's also a lot of institutional trauma for me yeah. from from those folks yeah i mean it's like what there's only i think what like maybe two or three disability studies majors in the us mm-hmm. that's not a rehabilitation mm-hmm. focus mm-hmm. i think it might be even less than that i could be totally wrong but yeah mm-hmm. I, I know like here at cal we have the minor but you know it's near impossible to find resources on how to get yeah. the minor Um, it's really confusing and there isn't really a proper department or setup for disability studies. Mm. Yeah. Cause I've been, I've been pushing for like the creation of like a designated emphasis for Mm -hmm. like grad students or at least a certificate in disability studies, because I think it would be really cool, especially for disabled grad students who, or, you know, grad students who are interested in critical disability studies, but didn't have that, had the advantage of having the opportunity to take the minor at Cal, let alone, or they just didn't have the spoons or the available time to be able to take the minor at Cal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, having designated emphasis, I feel could be helpful for a lot of disabled mm-hmm. grad students to, or grad students who are interested in it to, yep. to take it. Yeah. And I'll shout out my advisor's course. She's teaching um, a class called Bodies, Difference, and the Environment in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be sort of a crossover special between critical disability <laughs> studies and environmental justice. So, but yeah, there's very, there's very few classes for undergrads to take. Yeah. Um, I know they are, have a list, but the list yeah. is like, it's one of those things where it's like, it might not show up again for the next five years yeah. or something oh, yeah, like that, definitely. which is like, 
if you got to do a minor, that's not going to work. Right. Yeah. There's like the intro class in this in the fall, and then this one that my advisor's teaching in the spring. Yeah. Those for the first time. I think there's more for grad students. There's more courses, but Mm. still not many. Yeah, that's very true. But um, I know we're short, almost out of time. So, you know, I wanted to thank you, Maddie, for joining us on the Madcast and and sharing your valuable insights and experiences and. As always, it's you know just a pleasure to just get able to chat and hang out, and now we get to put something down on on what is this tape, Angel, or <laughs> yeah, you know, like on data disks or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, on the files. Yeah. 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 Thanks all for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Thank you so much. Your insights have been really interesting. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Madcast. We will be back soon with more discussions on disability and academia. Thank you for coming.